All right, that does it for us on News Nation Now, live from New York. I'm Connell McShane. Time to hand it over to Blake Berman, live from the state of South Carolina today. It's all yours, my friend. Hi there, Connell. Thank you so much. And hello. Welcome to the Hill, a primetime speech. And will he mention $100 billion? Tonight, President Biden will address the nation from the Oval Office. There's reports that he's eyeing a massive foreign aid package. But with war in the Middle East, would the majority actually be going to Ukraine? And if there's enough support, could Congress even act? Right now, the turmoil among House Republicans remains. They cannot identify a Speaker of the House. When and how does all of that end? Plus, college athletics getting the treatment before Congress. Are lawmakers ready to regulate? Hello from the state of South Carolina. The Hill on News Nation starts right now. Hello there once again. Thank you for being with us here on The Hill. I'm Blake Berman. We are live today from Winthrop University, Rock Hill, South Carolina. It's the northern part of the state, about 20 miles south of Charlotte, North Carolina. We're here tonight because after this show, I'll be moderating a forum with two different presidential candidates. The Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who polling shows is running somewhere around third or fourth in this state. And the former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. We'll play some of that in tomorrow's show, but let's get to today's. Joining me now is Lauren Wright, Associate Research Scholar and Lecturer in Politics and Public Affairs at Princeton University. Kurt Bardella is a Democratic strategist. Bob Cusack, of course, Editor-in-Chief of The Hill. Charlie Dent is the former Republican Congressman from the state of uh, Pennsylvania. And Mr. South Carolina himself. Mick Mulvaney, the former White House acting chief of staff under President Trump, News Nation political and economic contributor as well. Don't shake your head. You know you are, Mr. South Carolina Mulvaney. You're about, uh, you're, we'll you're get like to the president's address here. Am I? So why aren't you with yeah, us? <laughs> I'm working. <laughs> working. I get you. Trust me. I hear you. Uh, we're going to get to the president's address this evening in a moment. But first, did you see this a little while ago? A worldwide caution for Americans looking to travel abroad. It reads in part, quote, due to increased tensions in various locations around the world, the potential for terrorist attacks, demonstrations or violent actions against U.S. citizens and interests, the Department of State advises that U.S. citizens overseas exercise increased cautions. Mick, let's start with you. Uh, this is a pretty big announcement from the State Department. I'm wondering how uh, at the highest levels of government they go into thinking, you know what, we got to put something like this forward. Yeah, it could be a combination of things. We've seen this from time to time. I think we saw it one time last year uh, in, re in reaction to some things that are happening overseas. So uh, it's not uncommon, but it's also not normal. Um, the State Department could do this on general principles. There could be some actual actionable intelligence that you're seeing through the intelligence community. It's probably just an abundance of caution. Keep in mind, it's a fairly low-level warning. It's not a don't travel zone, and it's not specific to any particular area. So it's probably just common sense, Blake. It makes sense right now, given what's happening in the world, for Americans overseas to be a little bit more cautious than they otherwise would. Yeah, yeah as you know, there's a time and a place for everything, right? And it seems like the State Department says this is the time and the place for a warning like that. All right, turning now to the uh, Oval Office, where President Biden is going to make a primetime address to the American people in about three hours from now. 
He's expected to speak about the ongoing wars in both Israel and Ukraine. And according to reports, the commander in chief will request potentially a $100 billion aid package, $100 billion. One number that's being floated potentially, 60 billion earmarked for Ukraine, though the administration hasn't given specifics on that just yet. To the panel as a whole here, I mean, we, we had this idea that, you know, maybe this, this 12-figure number, $100 billion, uh, could be coming from the Commander-in-Chief. Again, we don't know that that's coming tonight, but Bob, we'll start with you. I'm wondering uh, what you're hearing over at the Hill, what we might hear from the Commander-in-Chief when he takes to the Oval Office. Well, listen, uh, you know, the Democrats and Republicans who do support uh, aid for Ukraine, uh, they want to move quickly and they don't want to keep going back and asking for more. So this is part of the strategy to ask for a lot of money. I don't know if they're going to get one hundred billion dollars in total. uh, But instead of going to Congress repeatedly in an election year, this is the strategy. Let's do it once. Let's give them a lot of money especially because when Zelensky was in town and I was at a, a small gathering of journalists with Zelensky, he said, listen, we need to make progress uh, this winter and we need money. And, and that's, why, that's why Biden is going to be making this case. Charlie and Lauren, uh, for, let's start with the former congressman. Is, is your party going to go along with this? Because w- once you start talking about potentially maybe in the area of $10 billion for Israel, that's, that's one thing. But then linking this to tens of billions more for Ukraine, uh, Charlie, I got to imagine there's some on your side of the aisle that are that are going to push back on that. Yeah, there are some, but it's clear to me that there is a strong majority in the U.S. House of Representatives to support both Ukraine and Israel, as well as disaster assistance and uh, and border probably border assistance as well. So I, I think at some point the problem for the Republican Party right now it's got to figure out if it can one find a leader, two. The government's going to shut down on November 17th, and they need to finish the appropriations bills anyway, and now they have this emergency request. So the, the short answer is, I think there will be plenty of support among Republicans for Ukraine and Israel. The question is, can you get a vote on the House floor, given that we don't have a speaker, and it doesn't seem like there's any path right at the moment uh, to get yeah. one over the next uh, few days? Yeah, we'll get to the House stuff in a second, but but Lauren, do you agree there that, that there's going to be... A mix? I, I mean, do. again, this is all hypothetical, but it's sort of what we're hearing. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, I do, you know, and I think the logistical concerns are exactly right. But beyond that, there are political differences between Democrats and Republicans on these things. There's more support among Democrats for funding uh, Ukraine, more support among Republicans for funding Israel. And so I think the president's very smart at lumping them together because you can't get one without the other. And really the task for him tonight in this speech is to talk about both crises as related to the U.S.'s security and to talk about how serious it is and to really talk about the history of the U.S.'s world uh, role as a, a moral leader in the world. And really when Biden's at his best is when he's talking about human suffering in really acute terms and talking about losing loved ones. And so my guess is we'll hear all of that for him tonight. But the arc across both countries, across both, um, both, both crises, I think, will absolutely be there. And it's really important. Kurt, what are you expecting tonight? Well, I think that the president's going to make the case to the American people about why both funding Israel and Ukraine are important, why there is a dynamic where they're somewhat related in terms of the security interests of the United States of America. And I can tell you, you know, I had a dinner just the other night with an ambassador to a country that's, you know, in, in Europe. 
the world is watching, uh, and the world is paying attention right now to what our domestic situation is. And there is a lot of concern that the instability that we have right now is going to impact uh, whether or not we're going to be able to meet our obligations to the global community. And when they look at what's going on right now, they're looking to President Biden. They're looking to the White House and to Washington for that reassurance to know that they aren't going to be abandoned and and left to have to deal with some of these issues without leadership from the United States. So I think that the stakes are actually really high for this address tonight, not just here in terms of the domestic audience, but from the rest of the world who is watching right now. Mick, peel back the curtain a little bit. Uh, You were the former chief of staff to to a president that did this kind of thing. I mean, this is one of those, I mean, you know better than me, but it, it you know, behind the resolute desk, oval office, what goes into to prepping a president for a speech like this? Um, a good bit. It's, it's about the second most important place that the president can give a speech. The first most important place is from the well of the House at a State of the Union address. But I think the folks have made the excellent points. This is a big speech for him. The world is watching. I just got before he came on the air, Blake, some information from inside Washington, which says that in addition to the $100 billion, the Biden administration actually is also looking to ask for more money for child care and broadband services. Um, that could throw a real monkey wrench into this. It's unclear as to whether or not that would be part of the same bill. So not a foreign a aid package, Mick? It, it, it's unclear right now as to whether or not they all go into one bill or if they'd be two bills trying to move at the same time. But clearly that changes the dynamic here. Charlie's right. There's a lot of support in both parties for uh, Ukraine funding. There's a lot of support of both parties for, uh, for, is, for supporting Israel. But if you start turning this into a Christmas tree bill, it gets to be very, very difficult. And if you lose the majority of the majority, again, all of this assumes that the House can find a speaker because we're not really sure they can even vote on this without a speaker. But let's assume they find a speaker yeah. and then they pass a bill with mostly Democrats and not Republicans. You may end up with another motion to vacate because that's what got Kevin McCarthy in trouble in the first place. So this is a, listen, the speech is a big deal. and I don't want to detract from that. It absolutely is. But from a legislative standpoint, this is a very, very murky situation as we sit here tonight. All right, let's keep Mick up and and bring Charlie Den up, both of them together, because this was the time in the show, I'll be totally transparent to the audience, that we were supposed to go to a member of Congress on the Republican side to to ask them, what are you doing in the speaker of the house, with the speaker in the house race? And we don't have that member of Congress because he was just yanked to a meeting uh, in the among House Republicans because they don't know what's going on. Uh, Charlie Mick, what's up with your party right now? <laughs> well, look, Charlie's look, older. It, Charlie's older. I'll let him go first. Okay. Well, look, <laughs> uh, the the party has to rally around somebody. It, it, it's pretty clear right now that not there is not a Republican c- candidate for Speaker who can get 217 Republican votes. You know, I, I like this idea of empowering McHenry, but that doesn't appear to be going anywhere at the moment. Bottom line is, I think, and Mick may disagree, they're going to need to assemble a bipartisan coalition to elect a speaker. Uh, they're going to have to enter into a power-sharing arrangement similar to what the U.S. Senate did in the previous Congress when the Senate was split 50-50, maybe do the same thing in the House. We've never done this before in the House. But that's but not going to happen. A, I mean, they tried well, that well, today. Well, why not? Well, 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 they, well, well they, they haven't had a negotiation Because they can't yet. get their act together. Well, of course, but they have to negotiate something sooner or later because they, they can't get 217 Republican votes. At some point, you're going to have to talk to the other side, just like they did on the debt ceiling budget agreement, just as they did on the recent continuing resolution, or any, just as they're going to have to do on November 17th to fund the government and then finish the appropriations bills. It's going to be bipartisan coalition. They might as well do it on the speaker because right now, 
you know, there's revenge of the rhinos right now. And I say that as a card-carrying rhino, and Mick would probably agree with that. Uh, that the, 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 you know, the, <laughs> the establishment wing of the party is pushing back right now. You know, Kay Granger and Mike Simpson and Steve Womack, Diaz Ballard, they're do using the same tactic now that the other side had used. But they're, I think, don't want to reward Jim Jordan and, and what they consider bad behavior. And I agree with them. You know, Jordan lost to Scalise, and a minority is trying to impose the, the losing candidate, Scalise, over the objections of the majority of the conference. And I can see why they're really red hot over this. And, you know, so in other words, you've got this group that deposed McCarthy that's, you know, taken these hard positions, and now you've got this other group that's, I think, the governing wing wants something other than someone other than Jim Jordan. And so it's not clear what the path forward is, but the bipartisan solution to me seems like the only viable path, as difficult as that may be. All right, let's bring Lauren and Kurt in. Um, Lauren, yeah, what are you like, telling your students I, now I just about, need to about say, this? Kurt and I predicted McHenry on Tuesday, so I think we get some pats on the back for that. And I still think that might be the way forward. I don't know what you think, Kurt, if that's likely or not, but... Probably not Jim Jordan at this point. I think that's very fair to say. He's made a lot of people angry, both in the conservative wing of the party, that's more the interpersonal strife, and among the moderates who don't agree with defunding the DOJ and that the 2020 election was stolen. He's got a lot of trouble there. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the situation now, particularly because there actually is a legislative, you know, uh, rationale here where, like, Congress is going to have to move on some stuff here. We've got the national security funding bill coming up. And, and to what, uh, you know, Mick pointed out earlier that it's just come out that the top Democrat on the Appropriations Committee briefed House Democrats saying that the White House is intending to send a supplemental domestic spending bill as well next week that does things like broadband and child care, um, as well as disaster aid. And so, being able to move on those, like the White House is going to be putting a little bit of pressure here on Republicans by sending the, these these funding requests to Congress. And if the Republican line is, well, we can't act on anything because we don't have our act together, they're going to look like a bunch of clowns and they're going to end up paying a heavier political toll the longer this goes on. And I think to what Lauren and I said on Tuesday, the obvious solution, at least for this exact moment in time to get them through at least the next week or two, is to try to find a way to empower McHenry to move some of these bills. All right. Well, just to show you what's going on uh, in the House right now, there was a little behind the scenes uh, dust up, uh, maybe another way to describe it, confrontation between Matt Gates, who started this whole thing two weeks ago, leading the charge to oppose Kevin McCarthy and Kevin McCarthy. They went at it behind closed doors. Joe Khalil, come on in. Uh, I think if you can hear us, what happened earlier today between Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates. I think it just goes to show the frustrations. Tell us about it. Yeah, it does, right? Chaotic, messy, pick your adjective. So mind you, let me set this up. We'll paint the picture here uh, for our viewers. This meeting was supposed to be about party unity, in a sense. Uh, they wanted to get everyone behind this resolution to empower McHenry. Instead, you had a lot of chaos, a lot of arguing. And then at one point, uh, Kevin McCarthy, former speaker, uh, literally shouted down Matt Gates, who apparently had interrupted him. He told Gates to sit down. Effectively, there were others that told Gates to shut up. And then you also had Congressman Mike Bost, a Republican from Illinois, we are told, that got up 
and aggressively approached. I don't want to use the word lunge because some members said it wasn't a lunge. He was too far away, but aggressively approached Matt Gates and bossed uh, screaming, in effect, had to be held back. This is the meeting that is about the unity of the party right now. So you can see just how messy it is. We do have Kevin McCarthy actually describing a bit of what was going on in those moments. Here's that. I was at the mic, I was speaking, and Matt Gates tried to interrupt his hand, so I told him to sit down, and he sat down. What's your deal? I think it, No, I told him to sit down. I, th- I think the entire conference screamed at me. People are, listen, we, the whole country, I think, would scream at Matt Gates right now. <laughs> Whoa. So not great, obviously, Blake, uh, not great. And I, I got to say, after <laughs> all of this, we now actually are being told there may still be a vote for speaker tonight. It was like totally off the table, now back on the table. Democrats and Republicans being told, stick around. We may have a vote in the next couple hours here. So who knows? All right, Joe Khalil, live for you. Yeah, never know. Uh, Joe Khalil, live for us in the halls of the Capitol. Before we go, uh, once you, you know, it was interesting hearing Kevin McCarthy there describe all of that. There was another interesting moment up on the Hill today. Uh, Senator Mitt Romney describing what he thinks is going on essentially within his party. Watch. And so you have people increasingly coming to Washington whose objective in staying in office is to make noise, not to make law, not to change things in a way that that might be better for the country, but just to to make a lot of noise and to show they're angry and fighting. And so politics itself has become more of a performance art. Want to get Mulvaney in here. Mick, is he right? Sure, he's right. Um, it's on both sides, by the way. That's what the squad is all about. That's what the Matt Gates wing uh, is about. Go back to the issue of what's going to happen in the next couple of days. Blake, the best line I've heard so far was from Mark Amaday, one of the funniest members of the Congress. He's a Republican from Nevada. He said today that they didn't have two, uh, 217 votes for Jesus, Mary and Joseph put together. Um, and I think that's about right. <laughs> Everything everybody else has said makes complete sense. Okay? It makes sense that you might end up with McHenry, which is why it's never going to happen. It makes sense that they go to a coalition. <laughs> that means it's never going to happen. Keep in mind, the same folks who are objecting to the coalition are the same folks who objected to McCarthy in the first place. I can't help but feel that one option that not enough people are talking about is a week from now, when the temperature is really high, people look at each other and say, you know what? Maybe McCarthy wasn't as bad as we thought. He's better than a coalition, yeah. he's better than a temporary speaker, and I don't think Kevin McCarthy is out of the discussion here by any stretch of the imagination. All right. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, he says he's running for Congress again, and you would say, why would he run for Congress again if he wasn't the Speaker of the House? Maybe for that exact reason, because he actually thinks that there's a play at some point in time to be Speaker in the House. All right. Coming up, uh, as we continue here from South Carolina, brand new numbers out in several key swing states. And it shows that at least for the moment, President Biden trails Donald Trump. We'll show you where and by how much and what it means for the key catchphrase in the race. The Hill, live from South Carolina, back in a few. All right. Welcome back to The Hill. A new poll out today from Morning Consult is spelling some trouble potentially for President Biden's reelection efforts. The poll of seven key swing states includes Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Really the ones uh, that experts are watching. And it finds that President Biden trails former President Trump in five of those states. You see the numbers there. 
He is down four in Arizona, for example, down five in Georgia, tied in Michigan, up by three in Nevada, uh, so on and so forth. You can see the seven states that matter there. Uh, Kurt, this doesn't look too good uh, for your guy, does it? I mean, I know we're a year out. I know these are, you know, just polls. But, I mean, man, um, what, what do you make of it? You know, unsurprisingly, Blake, I, I don't put much stock in these polls at this point, and really any of these types of polling, because, again, if the polling was what it's supposed to be, Republicans right now would have a 40-seat majority in the House. I mean, everyone said Biden's under, uh, approval rating is underwater in the midterm elections. Uh, sentiment about the country and the economy was upside down for Democrats. And yet, because Republicans continually step on their own ability to message things like the economy, areas that they can win on, and instead parade around and have sideshows like what's going on right now in the House of Representatives, the message just doesn't really cut through. Like, there's no doubt. It's not great to be the incumbent president and have numbers like that. There's no sugarcoating that. That's not a good position to be in. But I have serious doubts about the Republican ability to be able to actually successfully message that and stay on that message when the guy that's going to be leading their campaign, the guy that's going to be at the top of the ticket, is going to be campaigning from a courthouse for a lot of 2024. All right. So we're talking about Democrats and Republicans. But here's what caught my attention, Bob. Um, Independence. It surveyed 1,300 independents. Donald Trump plus 10 with a third-party candidate against Joe Biden. Head-to-head, Donald Trump, plus eight. Those are independents, Bob. Yeah, Blake, I mean, uh, that, President Biden became President Biden because he won independence uh, in 2020. But then even a year later, uh, the Democrats started to lose independence. Uh, they lost the Virginia governor's race. Listen, you know, a year before his reelection, President Obama called himself the underdog, and he was. Uh, President Biden right now is an underdog for reelection. He is a slight underdog. This is a toss-up race. But those numbers, uh, coupled with the numbers on Bidenomics, are not good. And if he doesn't improve them, uh, he's going to have a tough time. At the same time, Republicans are shooting themselves in the foot. This speaker thing is is a disaster. People are going to remember this. We're probably going to have another government shutdown. Republicans are going to get blamed. So we've got a long way to go, obviously. Yeah, you mentioned Bidenomics, Bob. 49% surveyed there said Bidenomics is bad for the country. Uh, Lauren, Mick, Charlie, 26% say it's good. I guess if you're a Republican, that's the number that you look at it, right? It's really bad because the economy is consistently the top issue that voters care about. And these are traditionally issues where Republicans are successful. And I think if anyone was the nominee that we've seen on these debate stages besides Trump, Biden would be in major trouble because three quarters of the country think the economy's on the wrong track. They blame him and they feel they were financially better off under Trump. All of these issues, immigration's one. Crime is one, education, school choice, you name it. These issues that people really care about are traditional winners for the GOP, but they are just so dysfunctional right now. And it's Trump who's, you know, four times indicted, twice impeached, re-election loser is the GOP's choice of the person to take back the White House. And that might not go that well. Well, you know, what's really interesting about... Real quick, how, how... Go on, Charlie. And then, you know, let let me pose this to both you and Mick. How good should and real quick, how good should Donald Trump be feeling when when he looks at this? Well, look, look, I think he should feel better about his uh, political position. But look, we don't need polls to tell us 
that a majority of Americans, over a majority of Americans, want someone other than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. They think one is too old and the other is too crazy. They want a, a different alternative. The, the parties are missing the boat here. They need fresh faces, but they're not willing to deliver. On Bidenomics, look, a lot of Americans equate Bidenomics with inflation. You know, and particularly food prices have exploded. Even though inflation has moderated a bit in, in recent months, it is still a very big issue, and that's what this is about. They can say whatever they want about Bidenomics, but people are paying a lot more. Okay. Wages aren't uh, growing fast enough, and that's uh, and not keeping up. Mick, they're not Mick. keeping pace with inflation. Mick, last word to you, real quick. I think we lost Mick there. Mick, uh, hang on. Uh, we'll get you on the other side of the break. We're in South Carolina. We can't lose Mick. We'll get his audio back, I promise. <laughs> Coming up, though, a moment of truth for the GOP presidential candidates. Some 2024 hopefuls are facing pressure to drop out of the race as they fall behind in the polls. So who's losing support and who, just as importantly, is losing money? We dive into it. When the Hill, live from South Carolina, returns. All right, welcome back here to The Hill on News Nation. The Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, campaigned here in South Carolina today, trying to rally support among veterans, a key constituency in this state. Now, as the candidates ramp up appearances in many of the early voting states, including here, the race has actually been fairly stable, I think it's fair to say. Donald Trump continues to hold a major lead over his rivals, both nationally and in early key states. And nationally, Trump polls poll numbers are higher than all of his other challengers combined. Now, several of his rivals are struggling to try to gain some momentum here. For example, the former vice president, Mike Pence, spent almost the same amount as he took in the last three months. And the super PAC that is supporting Senator Tim Scott has canceled its fall ad buys, all of it, some $40 million. Uh, Mick, Bob Cusack, let, let, let's start with you. Mick, this is your home state. You've known Tim Scott for quite some time. The, the soup, the, the pack, of course, is separate from the actual campaign, but that's not a good sign. Um, it, no, it's, it's not a good sign, but there's a little bit more depth and texture to it. The statement that came out from the super PAC said they were pulling the, the money down because they didn't think it was going to do any good. They've spent a bunch of money and haven't moved the needle. And what they said is it looks like people are just not ready right now to leave Donald Trump. Tim Scott still has a good bit of money. The last number I saw was that he was in second place with like $13 million. That was more than anybody else other than Donald Trump on the Republican side of the ledger. So it's almost like it's a practical consideration. We're not going to spend money in October and November when the first uh, primaries or at least caucuses aren't until January or February. So it's not the same as Mike Pence, who's running out of money. It's not the same as, you know, the folks like yeah. Asa Hutchinson, who I don't understand if they got any money to begin with. Folks are going to stay in this race to the larger point as long as they have the dough. That's what it comes down to, because anything can happen to Donald Trump. They're waiting for something to happen to him. And if he drops out of the race or something, uh, uh, something really happens to his numbers, they want to be around to pick up the pieces. As long as they have dough, they're going to stay in. And, and, but, Bob, there's a question, as, as Mick just pointed out, exactly how much money Mike Pence has left. Where does he go from here? I, listen, he's got a very difficult road. We are three months less than that uh, to Iowa. And I, I think a number of these candidates, whether DeSantis has to do very well uh, in Iowa or he could be out. And certainly when you when you go down to North Car uh, South Carolina uh, with Nikki Haley and certainly Scott, they've got to do well. Remember, 
2016. Marco Rubio uh, was had some had some momentum, was trying to catch Trump. And what happened? They went to Florida and Trump throttled him in, in Florida. And that was the end of Rubio. So you got to win your home state. And right now, as you mentioned, Blake, Trump is dominating these states. Yeah. Charlie, is it time for some of these candidates to get out there? There there's well, pressure yes. on some of them to do just that. Well, of, 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 of course. And by the way, with all this money, I'm not sure the timing of when they should spend this. But let me tell you what they should use the money for. They need to tear the bark off of Donald Trump. They have to knock down the top dog. I don't know what they're doing with their messaging, because right now Trump is going to win this primary unless they give a strong reason to fire <coughs> Donald Trump. They haven't been doing that. I mean, Chris Christie has, but he hasn't caught fire yet. But they're going to need to draw that sharp contrast. I just haven't seen it happen. They're going to need to use that money to message why Trump, you know, is too great a risk for the Republican Party. And I have just not seen that from enough of them so far. All right. And and then there's, um, you know, on the other side, obviously, we know President Biden is, you know, that side of the race is just about over. But then there's been questions about this shadow campaign, whether or not uh, Gavin Newsom, the California governor, has been running one. We, we, We know that he's going to be going to China uh, in the upcoming weeks. And today, Gavin Newsom said, I'm going to be going to Israel as well. Here was the, the tweet he sent out, the, the post, whatever you want to call it. He said, I'm on my way to Israel. I'll be meeting uh, with those impacted by the horrific terrorist attacks and offering California support. Kurt, uh, wh- what's going on with, with Gavin Newsom here? It's like Gavin Newsom's world tour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, between China and, and, and Israel, I mean, if you didn't know any better, you would say that these are the acts of someone who's running on the national stage for the highest office in all the land. There's no other real reason why the governor of a state would be going to China and be going to Israel, especially at a moment like this, unless you wanted to stoke that conversation of being a part of that presidential conversation and discussion. And I think for Newsom, I think he's kind of playing it two ways. He's on one hand saying, I'm completely behind President Biden. I'm doing everything I can to support the president and get him reelected. But on the other, he has put himself in a position that if for some reason it ends up not being Joe Biden, again, a year's a long way from now, a lot can happen. He is positioning himself as the heir apparent to be the leading Democrat. Lauren Newsom's world tour. Oh, my gosh, this guy. I mean, look, I'm from California, Blake. (laughs) I used to work in California politics. I understand Gavin Newsom is pro Gavin Newsom, and I'll do a lot to to prove it to everybody. But look, he would not be a good choice to replace Biden. I know Biden didn't beat him in 2020. He beat almost every other potential candidate that people have thrown out there. But look, he oversaw some of the worst pandemic era policies in the country, the longest school closures except for New New Mexico, shut down businesses, it doesn't look good in hindsight, and the worst homelessness crisis in the country, the biggest border crisis in the country. So when you take the magnifying glass to California, things are not going to be great for Democrats. However, he's a very skilled orator. He's good in a debate, I understand. And by the way, I think it's great he's going to Israel. They need as much attention as they can possibly get. They're facing an existential crisis. Uh, I don't understand the China trip as much, but we'll probably talk about that another time. Bob, what do you make of it? Well, listen, I I think it's a a shrewd move by Newsom. But to Lauren's point, I mean, I've talked to I haven't lived in California, but I've talked to a number uh, of Democrats who who live in California and they aren't impressed uh, with Newsom. Obviously had a recall effort, 
Uh, but he's keeping himself in the mix. We're talking about him, and he's going to run for president. Maybe it's not in 2024, but down the road, he's going to run. All right. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, I think we have to leave you here. I'm 10 minutes down from your house, you, you told me. Where should I go to dinner tonight? Uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> if I pick one, there's going to be 15 that are upset with me. So uh, eat at the university. It's the safest <laughs> okay, place. Um, we'll leave it there. There you go. All right. And we are at Winthrop University. Nick, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And uh, as I mentioned earlier tonight, I'll be moderating a forum here at Winthrop University with the GOP presidential candidates, Ron DeSantis and Asa Hutchinson. We'll be speaking to them separately. Uh, here's a live look right now inside the event. Winthrop University. We're in Rock Hill, South Carolina, uh, northern part of the state, but still only about 20, 30 minutes away. Uh, from Charlotte. This is sponsored by the South Carolina and North Carolina Federations uh, of Republican Women. You can watch it live on our website, newsnationnow.com. And tomorrow we'll be bringing you excerpts, parts of it, from my conversations with both of the candidates right here on the Hill. But before then, Congress and college sports, speaking of college, uh, is it time for lawmakers to jump in and act? Some of the biggest names testifying before Congress on the future of college athletics. So what did they say? We'll talk with one athletic director who went before Congress as The Hill continues from the campus of Winthrop University. All right, so before we say goodbye, here is a story, a headline that caught my eye. Washington Post, quote, forget dating apps. Senator Grassley's office has produced 20 marriages. Chuck Grassley, 90 years old, Republican senator from Iowa. Over the weekend, his chief of staff married another legislative aide uh, in his office, and that is now the 20th marriage during his tenure up on Capitol Hill. Cusack, can you beat that at the Hill or no? <laughs> Well, listen, to my 20 years at the Hill, I've been matchmaker for two couples and probably probably a few hookups as well. <laughs> okay. So, Senator Grassley, 20 is impressive, but I'm coming for you. <laughs> All right. I, that, that's a big number, 20, no? 20 is pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. We, we got to leave it there. Uh, thanks for hanging out. Uh, I'm at Winthrop University. You guys have been virtual. Wish I could say thanks in person, but we'll catch you next time. Uh, thank you all to you four. And thank you. thank you for watching here on the Hill on News Nation. I'll be back in studio tomorrow. I'm in South Carolina because coming up later this evening, I'll be speaking with uh, the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. They're here from a, for a forum, and we will play part of that tomorrow on the Hill. Until then, have a good evening. Elizabeth Vargas reports starts right now. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.